Hey, thanks for checking out the weekly podcast from Chattanooga Valley Baptist Church. We hope you found this episode to be challenging and encouraging. Now, let's turn our attention to this week's sermon from Pastor Brian Carroll. With all the rain that we, we experience, you know, we've seen our fair share of, of flooding in our area over the, over the years. And, you know, there have been a lot of places this summer that have experienced just a, just a, a lot of, of catastrophic flooding. One of our uh, deacons has been on disaster relief up in Kentucky, serving in Kentucky. And so, so a lot of places have seen a lot of, uh, a lot of flooding this summer. And of course, we're no stranger to flooding here. It seems like we kind of know where, the th- where things flood around here, though. We don't get caught off guard very often when it floods around here because it's, just, it's the usual suspects that are underwater uh, around here. A few years ago, we had some pretty serious flooding right after Christmas. I don't know if you guys remember this or not, um, but we were up visiting. We weren't, uh, this was before I was pastor here, and we were visiting family, and and uh, we had gone up to the mall, because that's what you do after Christmas. You go up to the mall and, and do all the after Christmas shopping. And, and I had forgotten how much it floods on the backside there in the Graysville area and how, how that area gets under a, a lot of water and, and kind of had forgotten about it. And um, we were in our Jeep, and, and I will say when the weather's bad, I usually do keep equipment uh, with us that we can use to recover equipment. Uh, we were part of a Jeep club at one point in time that during snow and things like that, we would go out and, and pull people out of ditches and things, and so we had a lot of fun. I, I remember one time pulling a, a guy with a Georgia Bulldog stuff all over his truck out of the ditch in the snow, and we pulled up with a, a Jeep that's got some gator stuff on it, and so that was satisfying to pull that fella out of the ditch. Um, so it's not, I, I'm, I'm familiar with, with helping people who get in, in stranded situations like that, and, and we've got equipment to do that. And so as we got closer to the area there on Graysville, not again realizing how much water there was there, there was a guy in a truck who tried to drive like a maniac through the, through the flood. Now, every man in the room has got that little boy in you that when you see water across the road, there's a part of you that wants to stomp on the gas, uh, because there is something deeply satisfying about the water shooting out the side and everything like that. I don't know what it is, and, and you know, I, I know you probably shouldn't do it, but there's just something inside of you that said you can't wait to hear that water just rushing out from under the vehicle. And this guy tried to do that, except he found himself in a ditch there on the side of the road in Graysville. And it wasn't just a, it wasn't just a little bit of water. He was windshield deep in water there in the ditch. And it was cold, and he was in trouble. And so I said, you know what? I'll try to help this guy. And so we got out there. We started inching pretty close. I had kind of resolved in my mind that as long as I could see the line under the water, I was okay to drive. I, you know, kind of my, my mental threshold was that if I couldn't see the line under the water anymore, that I was not comfortable going any further. So we kind of inched out to the guy. We got close to him, got our winch line to him, and uh, we managed to pull him back onto dry ground. And, uh, you know, he was left with a truck that didn't work anymore because they don't tend to run well when you get water in the, uh, in the engine. They don't run well after that. Um, and I will say that was, even that, even though we were prepared, it was still kind of a scary situation. Even though we were, had the equipment to, to help in that process, it was still scary. Uh, I couldn't imagine being in a situation where I had to get into that flooded area without the right equipment. Like, I couldn't imagine being in, like, a Honda Civic trying to help the guy. I mean, you know, I was, we were prepared, and it was still scary. And, and again, that, that was kind of standing flooded water. You know, it wasn't rushing flooded water like you see on these creeks and streams and everything like that. We get to Joshua chapter 3, and the priests are given this incredible order that they've got to get into the water of a flooded river. 
And I look at that thing, man, that had to be a scary command to get into the water of a flooded river and begin the process of conquering the promised land. And so we read this in Joshua chapter three, and it is a, it's got to be a frightening proposition for these priests. We understand that, that preparation for this moment has been going on. Had, we talked last week about the super secret, super secret spy mission to check out the city of Jericho. They've been planning for 40 years in anticipation for this time, and it is now time to go into the promised land, but there's one huge problem, one major problem that, that, that they have to deal with. There is a flooded Jordan River. And this is a big deal. This is not just a, a little creek that's, that's swollen a little bit. This is a major problem, a major obstacle there in the Jordan River. Now, getting two spies across the river, no big deal. You know, they could, they could figure that out. But getting a nation across the river, well, that was a little bit more of a, more of a problem. But God had been with his people. This isn't the first time they've encountered water problems, right? Uh, there's the, you know, you think about the, you think about God providing water for the nation in strange places. You know, they're thirsty in the wilderness, and God provides water out of a rock. Uh, you can't forget the fact that part of the national story of Israel is the simple fact that, that God got his people through another body of water, the, the Red Sea, while they were being chased by Egypt. And Joshua and Caleb were there. They remembered. They remember walking through the, the Red Sea as it was heaped up on either side of them. That story uh, almost functions as a bookend for the wilderness journey. This time's a little different. This time Moses isn't there. He doesn't have his, his miracle-inducing staff that he can simply raise up, and, and God does remarkable things through that staff. He, he's not there to provoke the wind to blow the water dry. This time, interestingly enough, Somebody's got to get their feet muddy. The priests are carrying this large chest. I mean, you think about the Ark of the Covenant. Most of our frame of reference for the Ark of the Covenant is from an Indiana Jones movie. And so, I mean, that's, our, that's what we picture are the Nazis standing over this chest. But, but I, you know, I think about what that must have been like to carry this chest that's overladen with precious metals, that's got these big statues on top of it. I mean, you know, the... If you've ordered appliances lately, you, you know how the, how the company delivers these things now. Usually they've got this uh, contraption where, where two people are, are carrying this thing. They've got these things that go over their chest, and, and the two people are trying to balance this appliance and, and carry it. And I've watched them do this with a, with a built-in oven, microwave sort of thing, and I'm watching them do it, and I'm thinking, I'm thinking man, that, that's intense watching these guys carry these appliances like this. But back in, in this day, they didn't have this fancy moving contraption. They had poles that ran through the side of it. And, and, and so you had a priest on one corner and a priest on the other corner and a priest on the back corners. You had these four men who were carrying this large metal chest with these poles that was overladen with metal. It couldn't have been an easy task is the point. And so we, we get these priests who are carrying these, this couple of hundred pound chest on their shoulders. They have to step into a flooded river. And God does something amazing yet again. If you've got your Bible, we're in Joshua chapter 3 today. Really, Joshua 3, 4, and 5 is one long story. We'll kind of chop it up over the next couple of weeks. But Joshua chapter 3, I'm going to read the first few verses here. If you'll stand with me while I read, that'd be great in honor of the reading of God's word. Joshua chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and they set out from Shittim, and they came to the Jordan, he and all the people of Israel, and lodged there before they passed over. 
At the end of three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, as soon as you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priests, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it in order that you may know the way you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. And then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And Joshua said to the priests, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on before the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you as for you. Command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant, when you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. And Joshua said to the people of Israel, come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, here is how you shall know that the living God is among you and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hirovites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. Now, therefore, take 12 men from the tribes of Israel, from each tribe a man. And when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth shall rest in the waters of the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing, and the waters coming down from above shall stand up in one heap. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you, God, for the power in which you show yourself real and evident in Joshua chapter 3. God, thank you for the obstacles in our lives that you help to over, that you overcome in front of us in the various ways in which you do. We pray, Father, as we think about these words, that they'll become real to us today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you, you could be seated. So we've been setting the stage for this moment over the last few weeks. Again, we've not had clarity on what is about to happen. It, and we know because we read ahead, right? So, I mean, we have the benefit of knowing the story, but I always try to put myself in the shoes of these people who were experiencing this for the first time, and they have not had any sense of what their journey is about to look like. Up until this moment in which the priests stand in the Jordan River, the river itself has presented itself as a very substantial obstacle, there's a flooded river. We're told the Jordan is at flood stage. And this was more than, than just an army that needed to move. We talked about this last week, that this is an entire nation. There is a, a nation of people that has to move from one side to the other. There are families. There are li there's livestock. There is possessions. There, there's all the, all the stuff of their religion, the tabernacle, and all those things. And crossing a river is a big deal. I remember playing the old computer game Oregon Trail when I was in elementary school, and uh, you know some of y'all remember that you sat in front of the, the the Apple computer and you had to stick the big floppy disk in, and you played the Oregon Trail, and and the Oregon Trail was one of these things where you had to get your your clan from the East Coast to the West Coast, and you had to avoid dysentery and all the things that could kill you along the way, and crossing the river was always a big deal because when you got to the river, you usually had two choices. What was it? You had to ford it, okay, and if you forded the river, what might happen? You might lose everything. You might get washed downstream. Or you could caulk your wagon, 
and you could caulk your wagon and you could try to float your wagon across the river in hopes that you didn't lose a child along the way or some other thing. Because, I mean, it's always something, you know, something tragic always happened in Oregon Trail. And it was always a big deal trying to cross that river. There was always the potential for catastrophe. catastrophe. And, of course, you get across the river, you get to the other side, and then dysentery is where, you know, that's what gets you on the other side of the river. Yesterday, the National Park Service posted this picture on their social media site talking, this is the time of year they start talking about some of the historical facts that surround the Battle of Chickamauga. And this was a pontoon bridge, a Civil War era pontoon bridge that I think was a picture taken, I think that's the James River up in Virginia. And so in order to cross these rivers, they, would, they had engineered these, uh, these rudimentary bridges that, that, um, that allowed them to cross the river. And again, you might have seen this very thing used, something like this used on the rivers and things in our area during the battle of, of, of the battles for Chattanooga, including the Battle of Chickamauga. I look at this, and I think, man, moving a 100,000-person army across this seems sketchy at best. Like, you know, that's, that's a scare. I mean, that's an intimidating sort of structure to try to walk across. And then I look at Israel, and Israel didn't have this level of technology. They didn't have pontoons that they could roll out there and whatever that pathway across it is made out of. They didn't have that. And they had more than just an army and the supply lines. They had their family. They had their animals. They had all of the things that go along with it. And now they've got this flooded river. So there's a major obstacle in their path. But what is incredible is that they continue moving forward in obedience to God's instruction. A Baptist preacher from a century ago once said, God often opens his hand one finger at a time. Really, that's what we see happening with Joshua and the people. God's got a plan. God knows the outcome. Joshua is simply seeing that plan given to him one piece at a time. God gives him enough to, to see the next step and then to trust him for that which he has not revealed. But that's what faith really looks like, trusting where we cannot see. But all that brings to light a very serious question, I think that manifests in our lives more times than we want to acknowledge. You see, Israel had a flooded river, but you may have any number of other obstacles in front of you. It may be a health obstacle or a family obstacle or a career obstacle or a financial obstacle. And whatever obstacle it is that's in your way, it may seem overwhelming at best and insurmountable at worst. And the question that comes to mind here is, how do we exercise faith when facing the various challenges of our lives? And one of the things we have to understand is that obstacles are always opportunities for God to be glorified. This should be a familiar scene for us in Joshua chapter 3. God's people standing beside a body of water. There is a, there is a task to be completed. There is a mission in front of them. There is a, there's an objective for them. And you know somebody in the group is probably standing there. The smart aleck in the group is looking at this situation. They're standing there. The river's right there. Okay, now what? I mean, how many of us are like that? We get to that place and, and we say, okay, now what are we going to do? Now what, what's, what happens next? And you know somebody's reading along is looking at this and saying, you know what? Wait and see. Wait and see what God's about to do because God's done it in the past. God's done this before. This is something, this is a redo. We get to see this again. It is certainly a major obstacle, but it's not insurmountable. Now, 
Yeah, without, without the divine assistance, what's the worst case scenario here? Well, you wait until the flood goes down. You ford the river at a safer season. I mean, you've waited 40 years. Why not? What's another couple of months going to hurt? Wait another couple of months. But there's just one problem with that. And we tell our children this. Delayed obedience is what? It's disobedience. Because kids are good at that, right? Go clean your room, and then two or three hours later, they haven't cleaned their room yet. And, you know, and they like to manipulate what you said. Because you say go clean your room, but you didn't set a timeline on it. And so go clean your room right now, you know, that, that should generate immediate results. But, but we understand delayed obedience is, is disobedience. And God has given Joshua the instructions. It's time to go. Remember, we got a timeline not too long ago. It was how many days? Three days. You got three days. So there is a timeline in place. You've got three days. And so we have an obstacle that is in front of us. If they waited any longer, they wouldn't be following the Lord, and they'd be starting their conquest of the promised land in the middle of disobedience. So you have to deal with this insurmountable obstacle. But dealing with this obstacle that's in the way is giving them an opportunity to see God make himself known through their faithfulness. Let me tell you something. God already, God already has a plan for your problems. Isn't that amazing? God already has a plan for your problems. Show me a problem in the Bible where God doesn't already have a plan. Show me a, a situation in God's word where God hasn't already figured it out. Show me a time where there is an obstacle in place that God hasn't already come up with the solution. There's never a moment where God doesn't have in mind what he wants to accomplish, what he wants to do. Our God is even so amazing that, that he came up with a plan for the greatest problem in the universe even before the problem was made manifest. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20, talking about Jesus, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. In other words, the problem of sin, God had already solved before we had ever even encountered sin. God had already taken care of, of that great problem. He'd already solved this great need. He'd already taken care of this tremendous obstacle in our lives even before we'd even manifest that. Peter reminds us that Jesus was, was chosen before the foundation of the world to redeem us by his blood. Now, we may, know not, we may not know what the plan for our problems looks like. We don't know what God has put in place for our circumstances. One of the things that God may want to do, God may want to let us learn to live with our problems. Paul said that he had a significant thorn in his flesh, and he pleaded with God, take this thorn away. Take this thorn away. And what did God do with the thorn in Paul's flesh? No, you're gonna carry this thorn with you. Why? Because power is made perfect in weakness. It was through the thorn in Paul's flesh that God's power was going to be made known to everybody that Paul encountered. Now, we don't know what Paul's thorn was, but God's plan for Paul's problem was not to remove the thorn. God's plan for Paul's problem was for Paul to deal with it for this season of his life. You know, one of the main reasons we go through difficult seasons is so that we'll be better equipped to serve others who go through those difficult seasons. 
2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 4 talks about how we are comforted in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in other afflictions with the comfort that we, receive. we ourselves were comforted by God. You've been through a tough time. Look for other people who are going through that same tough time so that you can encourage those people who are experiencing that same level of discomfort, who are experiencing that same obstacle. If you've been through a hardship and God has helped you through your hardship, it is your obligation to help others who have been through or are facing that hardship. Sometimes God's plan may be to remove the problem. We like that one, right? When God takes the problem away, I think of the people Jesus healed. Every one of those healings that takes place, somebody presented to Jesus with a problem, and by his power, he eliminated the problem. He took care of the problem. Think about the demon-possessed guy that Jesus delivered, the guy that was living in the cemetery. He had a problem. Uh, I'm glad nobody lives in our cemetery over here on the, you know, the church cemetery, but if somebody lived in the church cemetery, I'd look at him and say, you got a problem. You got a problem. Nobody lives in the cemetery. This guy did, but Jesus solved his problem. He took his problem away. Think about that poor woman who suffered with the bleeding problem for so long. She just came up in the crowd. She touched Jesus' robe, and immediately her bleeding problem was taken care of. Jesus solved her problem. Her problem was taken away. Or the man in John chapter 9, the man who was born blind. In John chapter 9, verse 1, it says, As Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind. This was the explanation for hardship. Why is this person why is this person got a defect? Why is this person blind? Why is this person suffering? Because God is punishing them for their sin or their or their or, you know, their parents' sin. This was the common way they explained it then. And Jesus said it wasn't for any of that. It wasn't because of this man's sin or it wasn't because of his parents' sin. He is like this so that the works of God may be displayed in him. We know what happens. Jesus makes the salve out of the mud and his spit and he rubs it on the man's eyes and the man can see. He takes the man's problem away. Takes the man's problem away so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Maybe you can think of a time that God addressed an obstacle or a trial or a challenge that you had. You were hurting, God took away the pain. Or, or maybe you had that coworker that drove you crazy and you prayed for God to help you deal with that coworker and one day that coworker quit, right? You think, you think thank you, Lord, right? I mean, that's the first prayer you pray, thank you, Lord. He didn't work here anymore. Thank you, Lord, he took the problem away. Sometimes God does that. And sometimes God's plan is to carefully lead you through whatever the challenge may be. It may not be something you have to live with like Paul's storm, but it is something you have to get through. I was reading Jonah the other day. We all know the story of Jonah. Most of Jonah's problems were self-imposed. If he just listened the first time, we wouldn't have a book of Jonah, quite honestly. Most of Jonah's problems were, were self-imposed. How many of us share that testimony? We look at our life and, and we, look at the, we look at the seasons in our life where things aren't great, and we just think, you know what, if I had just done it God's way the first time, this season of struggle that I'm in would not be what it is. Jonah was reluctant to do what God had originally said. He tried to get away from God's instructions. God said, go to Nineveh. Jonah said, I'm going to go the other direction. Jonah went the other direction. God still found him. You can't hide from him. He, he got on the ocean thinking, well, God won't find me in the ocean. Oh, yeah, he'll find you, especially in the ocean. So Jonah comes to the point, he don't want these men to die because of his sin, so they throw him overboard. God still finds him when he gets thrown overboard. 
giant fish comes up, swallows Jonah. Jonah thinks he's done for. He's going to be digested in the belly of this giant fish. And he prays to God, and God says, I'm not done with you yet. And he makes the fish vomit him out on the dry ground. Jonah finally relents. And he goes to Nineveh, and he preaches. He doesn't even get through his sermon. And people start repenting. And Jonah's bad about it, right? I mean, that's the thing about Jonah. He gets to the end, and people are responding. Nineveh is changed. There's sackcloth and ashes. Revival is breaking out in Nineveh. And Jonah goes, he crosses his arms, and he sits on the hillside, and he wishes that fire and brimstone was raining down from heaven. Instead, he's looking at revival breaking out in Nineveh. And what's God do? Well, Jonah's sitting there cooking on the side of the hill in Nineveh, and God allows this tree to grow up over him, and Jonah's thankful for the tree. And then while Jonah's thankful for the tree, a worm comes and eats the tree, and Jonah's cooking again on the side of the hill. And God looks at Jonah, and he says, you are disappointed about this tree. What about the, 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 the ton of people down there in Nineveh who were destined for destruction, but who instead have found redemption? God led Jonah through a difficult season. He walked with Jonah through, through his reluctance. And even when Jonah was mad about it, God was still actively teaching him through the whole ordeal. How many of us have found ourselves in, in that self-imposed affliction where we've done something along the way or we've made a decision along the way and we realize what a dumb decision it was, but God is still faithful in teaching us through our foolishness. Regardless of the outcome of the challenges we face, we've got to be faithful to follow the Lord throughout it. While teaching the people here in Joshua chapter 3, they, they tell the people that they need to keep a good distance from the ark. He says they're in unfamiliar territory. Look at verse 4 again. He says, Yet there shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it in order that you may know the way you shall go. For you have not passed this way before. Here again, we see the essence of what real faith looks like. And this, this tends to be true for our greatest challenges and trials. When we get into hardships, most of us feel that way. We've never been this way before. We've never encountered this before. We've never experienced this before. But here's the thing. We have to trust God even in the unexpected, unexplored places in our journey. We understand that for Joshua's people, the ark symbolized God's presence to the people. So by following the ark, they were following the Lord. You see, our very real temptation, I know because I do this, our very real temptation is to try to navigate difficult places by our own wit, our own cunning, our own intelligence, our own knowledge. And when we reach our quote-unquote wit's end, and that's when we frequently turn to the Lord for true help. And this so often leads to significant mess-ups and heartbreaks and hurts. How much problems and pain have we experienced in life because we waited? Not waited upon the Lord, as the Scripture teaches us, but we waited to involve the Lord. How many of us have ever been in the situation where you make a decision and then down the road you ask God to come along and maybe baptize the decision that you made? Lord, I did this. It's not going so well. You think you could come along maybe and, and sprinkle some holy water on this decision and, and sanctify it and make it work out better? And God says, I wish you'd really talk to me before you made the decision. 
I wish you'd had a conversation with me before, before you got into this mess. The book of Hebrews challenges us to keep our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And here's the thing, if we keep our eyes on Jesus, we'll be better equipped to handle our challenging situations. The Israelites were to keep their eyes on the ark because the ark was paving the way for them. The presence of God was showing them the direction that they should go. As Christians, we should keep our eyes on Jesus who is paving the way for us. Even when we're in unfamiliar, unexplored territory, we keep our eyes on Jesus. And we need to make sure we're spiritually ready to confront our challenges. Joshua told the people in verse 5, it's a word, a phrase we don't use today. We probably should. He says, consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. Anybody consecrate themselves this week at all? Like I said, it's a word we don't use very often. You know, nobody says, uh, nobody comes to church on Sunday morning, well, I had a phenomenal week of consecration this week. We don't talk like that. What does it even mean to consecrate yourselves? Well, in Joshua's context, it means to, to get right. Make yourselves holy. Purge the wrongdoing, the sin, the mess from your lives. It was a reminder that if they had sin or rebellion or folly in their lives, they need to get that straightened out. They need to get themselves cleaned up. They need to spend a season preparing and focusing and getting ready because it's an interesting word for us. Because here's the thing, we've been set apart by the blood of Jesus. I don't approach God in my own holiness and righteousness because my own holiness and righteousness is like filthy rags. Instead, I'm allowed to approach the throne of grace with confidence because I've been covered by the blood of Jesus. So I've been made holy and righteous, not by anything that I've done, but by everything that Jesus has done. I've been declared righteous by Jesus' righteousness. So I don't get to consecrate myself because Jesus has consecrated me. But it doesn't mean that I'm immune from this need to be spiritually ready because here's the reality. How many of us still find ourselves struggling with sin and folly in our lives? Because we we're, not, we're not perfected yet. We're not in glory yet. We still wrestle with sin and mistakes in our lives. And so we constantly have to remind ourselves. And we constantly have to renew our mind and refine our heart. For us, consecrating means repenting and refocusing on the Lord. I mean, even Jesus took time to get ready for the crucifixion. He obviously didn't need to repent from sin. He didn't need to make himself holy. He already was. But where was he the night before he was betrayed? He was praying. He was getting ready. He was spiritually preparing for the hardship that he was about to endure. Listen, if you're facing some sort of obstacle, it's important that we take steps to ensure that our heart is spiritually ready to face those obstacles. Joshua's people had to prepare themselves to face the obstacle. Confronting the challenges that we face may not be easy. It may push us in ways that we've never been pushed before. But getting through those challenges, it may mean that we have to trust God as he opens his hand, one finger at a time. And confronting those obstacles may actually mean that we have to get our feet muddy. My favorite part of this whole episode is not like it was at the Red Sea where Moses was able to stand at the Red Sea and raise his staff and the wind blew and there was this incredible miracle of the Red Sea parting. Of course, I mean, that's dramatic. I think of Charlton Heston in the Ten Commandments when that happens. It's a stunning image even for that day and time in which the movie was put together. But, but I think about that. This is not what happens here. My favorite part of this whole episode is that the priests who are carrying the Ark of the Covenant, they gotta get their feet muddy they got to step in the river. 
And that's, what exa- that's, that's exactly what happens here. We're told that they would eventually stand on dry ground, but they had to get into the water first. Joshua 3, 8, when you come to the brink of the Jordan, you shall stand in the Jordan. Not you shall stand on the bank, not that you shall get close. You got to step into the water. We think no big deal, right? It is kind of a big deal. When you think these four guys, what they're carrying on their shoulders, pretty sizable chest, had to weigh several hundred pounds. A big deal when you realize that what that chest had in it, had the Ten Commandments in it, had, you know, had, had some pretty important stuff in it, right? Not to mention the fact that this chest was where the sins of the nation were atoned for. And so this was a big deal in the spiritual health of the nation. Not to mention the fact that if anybody touched it incorrectly, what happened to them? They dropped dead. Like, okay, I want you to carry this box into this flooded river on your shoulders and make sure you don't stumble or slide or slip because if you accidentally drop it and touch it, you're probably going to die. You want me to get in the water with this thing? You want me to get my feet muddy? It's not like they're stepping into a lazy river at a water park. They're stepping into a flooded river with torrents and, and, and currents and all those things. And so these priests get in the water, eight muddy feet. And when they got in the water, things started to get exciting. I'm sure some of those guys may have had a reservation about the plan. But here they are, more than half a mile in front of the nation, and they step in. And they look down at their feet, and the water begins to stir. Can you imagine? The water begins to move around their feet. Not like the current was flowing, but it begins to do something that they've never seen before. Water flows uphill, and everybody knows that it flows downhill, not uphill. That water started to flow uphill. And Where they were standing in water, they were no longer standing in water. They were standing in mud, and that mud eventually became dry. You see, in order to see God's glory through our obstacles, sometimes we have to wrestle with them for a little bit. And sometimes we might even have to get our feet muddy. And consider Jesus. He didn't die peacefully in some room somewhere surrounded by family and friends. He died a very lonely, yet very public death. It was a spectacle. It was a miserable death. But Jesus was tasked to overcome the biggest obstacle in human history, and that's sin. All of the pain, all the anguish, all the separation that caused, that was created by sin, was placed upon Jesus. All the loneliness and abandonment. He cried out from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I mean, that was the the emotional situation in which Jesus found himself as he was being crucified. Consider what the writer of Hebrews had to say in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 3. Consider him, consider Jesus, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted in your struggle against sin. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. In dealing with the obstacle of sin, Jesus got much more than muddy feet. Jesus got bloody feet. Yet even in the middle of that, that spectacle, that horror show, 
on Calvary's hill, God was glorified. When Jesus died, the centurion standing at the foot of the cross looked at the way that he died. And what that centurion, the one guy up there, the executioner, the guy with blood on his hands, looked at the way Jesus died, and he said what? Surely this man was a son of God. Jesus covered in blood and spit and everything that the world could have thrown at him, wrestling against our sin, overcoming the greatest challenge that existed, the Lord Jesus Christ glorified God in the midst of the trial. And people saw it. You know, I don't know what you're facing in your life. I don't know what challenge or obstacle you've got before you. But if you're just sitting there staring at it, hoping it'll move, it probably won't. We don't have any way of knowing how God is going to handle the obstacles, the challenges in your life. We know how God has handled the challenges in other people's lives. Sometimes he's removed those pain, those challenges. Sometimes he's taken them away. But sometimes God's plan is for you to endure as you simply point people to him. See, the Bible's filled with promises to those who endure, to those who persevere. The thorn may remain in your flesh. How many of us, even today, carry the scars of trials that God didn't take away from us? How many of us have those hardships that are still very real in our mind? But you know as well as I do, we wouldn't be the people we are today without those scars. We wouldn't be the people we are today without those testimonies. And don't be completely surprised today that if God's plan for your obstacle is for you to follow him right into the middle of the mess, and you can really only see him move when your feet are sinking in the mud of a flooded river. Now, we may not know how God wants to work through our obstacles and trials. But one of the things that we do know is that in this life, we are going to experience challenges. My in-laws live over around Blue Ridge, and we go visit them. We usually go up to Cleveland and cut over through the Ocoee there. And I've noticed that as I drive through there, there's signs in various places, and the signs in the gorge say, Fallen Rocks. And I was looking at that sign one day, and I thought, you know what? I know what they're trying to communicate to us. They're trying to warn us that as you drive that curvy road, that there is a high possibility that a boulder or rock from up above could have fallen down the side of the mountain and landed in the middle of the road so that you are aware of the fact that there, are, there, there may have been rocks that have fallen into the roadway. But I read that, and I can't help but not see it from a physical standpoint, but from a spiritual standpoint. And I look at that, and I say, amen. The rocks are fallen. So is the river. So are the trees. It's all fallen. And especially the people <laughs> that the signs are meant to warn. They too are fallen. We are fallen, and we live in a very fallen creation. And as long as that is the case, we are going to have floods and fires, tornadoes and termites, diseases and despair, poverty and pain. Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. 
We will face giant, insurmountable issues that fill our vision, consume our thoughts, distract us from the goal. But what we see as an obstacle to our progress, God sees as an opportunity for his power. The question we have to ask is, are we willing to get our feet muddy to the glory of God? Are we willing to wait in and see what God wants next as he opens his hand one finger at a time? Would you pray with me, please? Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the power with which it speaks. Father, we acknowledge today that we are fallen people and so many of the hardships and trials we experience in this life are a direct result of the fallenness of our creation and the mistakes that we make as sinners. Father, I pray that as we encounter challenges and obstacles, whether they seem insurmountable, they seem impossible, Father, that we would seek you through each step, that we would follow you as we wrestle with these things, that we would be obedient to you. Lord, even if it's your plan for us that we would have to wade through it, and even if it's your plan for us that we would not be delivered from it, that, God, we would seek to glorify you in it each and every step of the way. At the very least, may people look at us in the midst of our challenges and say, surely these people follow Jesus. And so, God, if that means muddy feet, God, if even if it means we're swept away by the flood, may we point people to Jesus through our faith and obedience to you. God, I pray that as we encounter the obstacles of our lives, that we would look to you and that we'd keep our eyes on Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Thanks for listening. If you would like more information about Chattanooga Valley Baptist, check us out on the web at cvbchurch.org. If you would like to join in person, we worship every Sunday morning at 1045. We're just minutes from downtown Chattanooga. We hope to see you soon.